0: Welcome to Tangible Assets for Tangible Results with Troy Eckert. This one-hour, information-packed program will give insight and specific details how investors can review, learn about, and consider different tangible asset classes for your portfolio. Array of topics, specific details, and critical tips to protect and build your wealth. Now, here is your host, Troy Eckert. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Troy Eckert from uh, Dallas, Texas. Let me tell you, it's the new Alaska, if you've been watching the weather lately. This is the show you want to be paying attention to. It's Tangible Assets for Tangible Results. I'm Troy Eckert, your host, and thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, at any time during the show, you're more than welcome to call the live line at 866-472-5790. Again, 866-472-5790. Now, let's talk about the show and what we're going to do today to help you get some information that may create some wealth and value for yourself. And, of course, I want to bring you some insight based on 35 years of my investing and my personal uh, expertise in dealing in multiple different tangible asset classes. First off, let's talk about the show and what it was designed for, because I want you to know there's so many shows, so many podcasts, so much information. There's great speakers, great hosts. And everyone has their different angle. My angle is very simple. I've had the luxury of three and a half decades over 35 years dealing with nothing but millionaires and individuals who have made themselves very wealthy as entrepreneurs. Because of that long standing relationship and because of 35 years of working with wealthy investors, I believe I've created a PhD in hard knocks, a PhD in learning how entrepreneurs think, the way they work, and most importantly, some of the insights that they've shown me and that I've learned on my own about how you can make money, smart investments, by not being so in the path of normal standard ideas. In other words, be a contrarian. Think outside the box. First off, again, I'll remind you, it's tangible assets for tangible results. Let's talk about what that really means. In my view, in my world, if you cannot see it, kick it, touch it, or feel it, it's not tangible. In other words, I, if I'm going to invest in gold, I want those gold bars in my own safe. I don't want to buy a piece of paper. If I'm going to invest in real estate, I don't want to buy into a partnership or an LLC. I want to own that piece of property myself. If I'm going to go by producing valuable mineral rights, I want to own those where I know I have deed and title, so that way I know for sure they belong to me. In this day and age, everything has moved to an intangible world. Last week's show, I very clearly was pointing out how the stock market itself has changed dramatically over the last 15 to 18 years, where the bulk, if not more than 65 percent of the stock market in the underlying assets of those companies were actually based on tangible assets, real estate, property, inventory, uh, rideways as far as railroad tracks and trains and cruise ships. It was all based on tangible assets that if the company were dissolved, those, in fact, could be sold off to repay their equity partners in any debt. Today, we fast forward. Now we're in a digital world. The value of the stock market's up to almost $30 trillion and growing by the day. And about 75% of the stock market value today, if you had to liquidate those companies, minus their trademark and maybe some blue sky It represents about 75% being intangible, things you could not go to a bankruptcy court, liquidate, and get that much money for it based upon the intangibility of those assets. All right, let's talk about what the show's going to do and what we hope to get accomplished today. First off, the idea that I had in tangible assets with tangible results or for tangible results was that so many of us watch real estate transactions and oil and gas exploration and other types of areas where you see uh, opportunity but you can't quite get your head around it. My opportunity for you is to share some of my life, real life examples of things that I've been through and projects that I've undertaken with the idea that you too can maybe start with your own decisions and your own process going forward and start learning how to make money and make smart decisions and also maybe how you can also raise some outside capital if that's what you're desiring to do to bring in some partners with you. Okay. So first thing is I want to provide you with some investment ideas. I want to tell you about some things that I think can be very sensible. Uh, many of us have a lot of time on our hands. We're thinking of other ways to create wealth for our families. And so these investment ideas can stimulate your brain and give you some things to think about. I want to provide you some unique insights. Uh, One of the advantages I've had is I owned an investment company for 22 years, and I've been in the investment world since 1985. And let me tell you, there has been some magnificent changes. There has been some difficult changes. But when it's all said and done, all those positives and all those negatives rolled up into one big industry, which is the investment world, it gives you a lot of insight about how things can work and some of the pitfalls you want to avoid. I want to help you create an opportunity for yourself. I want you to think about the ways in which you can maybe take some of your current assets, maybe some of your current income, maybe some of your current time and start to figure out what you might be able to do on your own to create some valuable by focusing on tangible assets. And then last but not least, I want to stimulate your imagination. You know, that's one thing that I've been so blessed with my entire life is that uh, I'm that kind of guy that, uh, I'll give you a good example. I'm that kind of guy that when I first met my father all back in the in 1980s and I was dating his oldest daughter, uh, he took me out to his deer blind one day and he said, we're going to go out to the deer lease, Troy. Have you ever been out there before? I said, well, no, sir, I've not. I've never been deer hunting in my life. I was about 18 years old. He said, well, it's real simple. We've got a 3,000-acre ranch that we've leased. We have different deer blinds that are positioned all over the deer lease, and we've cut little paths for the deer to f- and the animals to flow through called cinderas." Uh, what we'll do is we'll each take a spot in the morning. Uh, we'll get there before daylight comes up. We'll allow the animals to come out and begin to feed, and then you'll have a decision to make as to whether or not you want to hunt one of the animals or whether you just want to be out there as an observer. I said, okay, well, you know, that's fine, but just like this show, tangible assets for tangible results, what am I looking for? What is the idea scenario for me to look at when I'm going deer hunting? You said, well, we're looking for deer that are going to be basically, you know, 150 pounds in weight or bigger. We're looking for deer that are going to have, you know, 8 to 10 points or more on their, on their rack. And you're looking for one that really has a beautiful display to make it worthwhile. Because obviously you're going to use the meat, but you might as well get something that's going to make sure you have a nice, beautiful trophy to put up on the shelf. I said, okay, sounds really good. So I get in the blind. It's 530 in the morning. I wait for the sun to come up, and I'm sitting almost like at a four-way dirt crossroad. And all of a sudden, animals start coming out around daylight. And before I know it, within the next two hours, at any given point in time, there was probably 20 to 25 big buck deer that looked exactly like my father-in-law had described. So I didn't shoot anything that day because I wasn't quite sure how to disseminate from one from the other. Kind of like investments. Sometimes you get so many investments on your table, you're thinking... Well, which one is the right one? Which one has the best attributes? How do I determine one's better than another? Surely, they can't all be the same. So my father-in-law picks me up, and he says, okay, Troy, well, how'd it go? How'd, How'd your hunt go? I said, well, to be honest with you, I felt like you're playing a joke on me. I said, because you described what I was looking for. You told me it was a little difficult. You told me I had to be very select. But when the whole process was over, what did I find? I found there was 20 to 25 that met your description. So how in the world, without having hunted before, do I know the right one? I said, I felt like I could have literally jumped out of the deer blind and, and maybe stabbed them in the back or rode on. And he laughed and said, that's the difference. The difference is when you have sat in deer blinds and you have been deer hunting multiple times, you can look at 25 deer and all 25 in your mind, you can rank and you can decide which one is the right one to go after and the ones that you want to leave alone. Well, I always think about little things like that in my life because I think about how those little analogies make a lot of sense when it comes to investment world. Somebody might tell you, you know, hey, let's go buy rent houses. Well, man, that's a big, broad statement. When you think about rent houses, it could be all over the board. Like, what does that mean? Does it mean I'm going to go buy uh, condos or duplexes? I'm going to buy, you know, small homes, big homes, large homes in poor neighborhoods and wealthier neighborhoods. It just really has a lot to do with what the description is. So one of the things that's most important for you, for me, or anybody that's making investments is when somebody gives you a big, big class and they say, hey, listen, we want to talk about uh, intangible or tangible assets. That's, that's a mouthful. That's, a, that's an entire encyclopedia covering multiple opportunities, and so we need to dissect it. So today's show, I thought what I'd do is I would just really hone in on one area that many of you have either thought about, maybe some of you have actually made investments in this area. Or maybe you've always wanted to make investments in this area, but you haven't done so. So today's topic is simple. It's land development and attracting investors. Now, some of you may be on today's show, and you may listen to it and say, well, I'm really interested in attracting investors. Some of you may say, I don't really need any investors. I have my own money. I just want to know about land development. Some of you may say, I've already done land development. So it'd be interesting to see what Troy has to say that maybe could be of added value. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that no matter how many times You've been involved in investments. No matter how many times you've done something in particular, the fact is you can always improve and you can always get better. Uh, the reality for me in land development is is that I believe I have had enough experience in land development to know the basic. Uh, information to know the basic patterns, and know the basic steps. I know, and I've been through uh, several different land developments that have given me some great lessons on how to share with you some of the things you can take advantage of, and hopefully some of the things you can take away as being uh, pitfalls that you might want to avoid. So I'm going to go through a few examples today, and I'm going to basically give you some information I think will help you understand a little bit about uh, land development. And at the end, I'll talk to you about how you can attract investors. And as most of you may or may not know, uh, my entire career. Uh, has been involved in investments. I started off as a licensed broker. I worked for a small firm in Dallas, Texas in the 1980s. I then subsequently owned my own brokerage firm in the 1990s, and I had that firm up until the early 2000s. Now what I do is I manage my own office. I manage my own assets. I deal with only qualified accredited investors, which means all of my clients have a million dollar of investment capital or higher. My clients range from two and a half million dollars in net worth up to two billion dollars. So when I look at the investments that I make, my first thought is I'm always looking for the investments for my own account and I'm looking for the areas that I want to invest with my own money. It's really, really important for you to know that in this case, this show, what I'm going to do is I'm not asking you to invest. I don't even want you to invest. What I want you to do is know that I'm doing this because I believe that there's synergy and like-minded people. And if anything I can do helps you with your own investment strategy that will be something that I walk away with as a great feat for my part, but also there may be a chance for us to do business somewhere down the road if and when that ever occurs. So let's talk about raw land development. Now, that is, again, I said, a large subject. Raw land development, as it's defined in my mind, simply says it's the, it's the movement of undeveloped land to another category of use. It's going to be repurposed. So let's, let's take something real basic. Let's slow down just a second. Let's talk about something real basic. Let's say that you live or you drive through a neighborhood, and it's all made up of single-home residential lots. And let's say that you've been driving through this neighborhood four or five years, and you notice, wait a minute. It appears that there is a few homes in this neighborhood in which there is a home, but it's sitting on two lots. Maybe it's a really old subdivision. Maybe it's 20-, 30-, 40-year-old houses. But when you drive through it, you notice that most houses are on very simple side-by-side lots with not any extra room. But occasionally you'll see that second or third lot out there and you think to yourself, well, that guy's got a nice lot. Well, land development is repurposing it. So it doesn't mean I have to take a bulldozer. It doesn't mean I have to go in and change the dirt. It doesn't mean I have to do something dramatic. It could be something as simple as pulling up from the courthouse records, going online and recognizing that that homeowner effectively has possession of two lots they just happened to put it into one physical residential address so when the development was taking place somebody decided they wanted more elbow room they didn't want a neighbor right next to them and they acquired two lots well now here they are ten, twenty, thirty 20 30 years down the road maybe it's the second third maybe it's the 10th owner of that house and they might not even realize that when they bought that home They actually had a physical lot that was pre-approved when the subdivision was put together that could, in fact, be a separate single lot that somebody could build another home on. But if you know that or you're paying attention to it, you can contact that owner and write him a letter and say, I've looked at the court records. It appears that you have two lots. Without interfering with your primary home or your primary lot, I'd like to make you an offer to buy that lot. I'll pay for the work necessary to replat that lot or to pull it out of a single deed and put it back into two separate deeds so you own your house and you own your own home on your own lot, but I'll buy that second lot. Now, why would this be important? Well, let me tell you what's going on in Dallas-Fort Worth right now. In the last nine months since this whole COVID-19 lockdown, there's been an enormous influx of people into the Dallas-Fort Worth market. The one key thing we did not have enough of we still do not have enough of, is lots. It takes so much work and so much time in order to get approval for new residential lots that it is an expensive proposition and it requires a lot of very deep pockets. you got to have the money to buy the land. You have to have enough money to go in and put the infrastructure, to get the engineering done. And then you've got to go in and put the roads and the gutters and the sewage. So lots are very, very difficult to put together because it requires a lot of seed capital in the beginning. So, if you notice a dual lot residential lot and you can peel that lot out, as I've described, by making an offer and taking title to it, which you can find in a good market, in a good neighborhood, or even at very reasonable, if not substantially lower prices than the fair market value, you can find a way to buy lots. I'll tell you what's happening here. I'm going through neighborhoods, I'm watching double lots that have been sitting here for three or four years, and within a matter of the last six months, I'm now seeing builder signs going up in those empty lots. And what those builders did is exactly what I'm describing. They went through all these established neighborhoods that have been here 10 or 20, 30 years, and because there's such a shortage of lots, these builders are going in making very good, very strong offers to buy the lots with a specific intent of building brand-new homes on those lots that are already in developed subdivisions. Now, you say, well, that's easy to see because everybody's doing it. The market is hot. But let me tell you something. Where I'm living is in the the nicer part of Dallas-Fort Worth, but you can do this across the entire Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex where you can go into any development, any subdivision, covering the entire area of Dallas-Fort Worth, and because of that, you almost have an unlimited amount of opportunity. It just really has to do with your focus, where you feel comfortable, and, of course, it has to do with how much money you have. In my neighborhood, these guys are trying to go after three and four hundred thousand dollar lots. In other neighborhoods, you might be picking up a lot for ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Now, why is the person going to be motivated to sell? Let me tell you why they're going to sell. They're going to be interested, more often you believe, they're going to be interested in selling because when they acquired that home and it had a double lot, Of course, they were excited about having an oversized lot. They didn't physically understand that that lot could, in fact, be peeled away and sold off as a partial asset, which they could then use the proceeds of that sale to reduce their mortgage amount, to pay their mortgage down, or use those proceeds, if their mortgage will allow them to do so, to pay off other debt. So a lot of these larger developments, these these established developments around this Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I'm sure it's all over the country, what people are doing is they're recognizing it is a very, very frothy market. The land that they bought is worth a lot of money. And so now what they're doing is they're cashing in, knowing they can use those dollars today to pay off debt or pay down their mortgage. So I believe when you think about raw land development, that's just one example. Now, raw land development that you think about and I think about is buying 20 acres of land, going in and having entitlements done to that land with the idea that you can turn around and increase the value by repurposing it. Now, let me tell you what I like about raw land development. Raw land development has always been, I mean, it's just an absolute fetish should me. I mean, I love it. Uh, I'm kind of a, uh, I, I like to see beyond the clouds. I like to see beyond the fog. And when I think about raw land development, it gives you the ability to open a brand new box of Play-Doh and say, I can make whatever I want to make as long as I know I can afford it. You could take a piece of land and turn it into a mobile home park. You can take it and turn it into an apartment complex. You can turn it into a residential development. You can turn it into a high-rise building. The idea is depending on where you're looking for the land, what the rules and regulations of the municipality or the area that you're in calls for or allows based on zoning, and it also has a lot to do with how much money you have. So what I like about law land development is the following. You can be a salaried employee, you can be an entrepreneur, you can be retired, or you can be fully employed. You can be a female or male, you can be old or young. There is an unlimited amount of raw land opportunities in any location that you're living. I don't care if it's from East Coast to West Coast, municipality or rural property. Raw land development is available in abundance. There is no inhibition. There's no restrictions from you being able to do that. There's no licenses that I know of that are required for you to go out and make offers or to buy land or to look at land with the idea of repurposing that or changing the current status of land into something of a greater, higher value. So let's, call, let's recap that. I have unlimited amount of opportunity. I don't have to have a license. I don't have to have all this special college education. I don't have to be an engineer I don't have to be an architect. I don't have to be a land planner. I just have to be an individual with enough foresight and enough time on my hand to recognize the value of going out and looking for land that can be bought, acquired, redeveloped, and a nice, handsome profit can be on the other end. I like the fact that raw land has a low barrier to entry. Again, using my example earlier, I could go in and find the double lot and buy a lot for 10000 or 15000 $50,000, whatever that number may be knowing that the true value of that lot may be double or triple that amount because there is no more lots available in that neighborhood. So if you can find a fully developed neighborhood and people want to live there and they can't figure out how to get in there, most people are not smart enough. They don't take the time to learn. They don't know they can go buy that lot and turn around and resell it for double, triple, or quadruple the price they pay for it. That's a big advantage for you and I by having that kind of awareness of raw land development. Um, I also want to point out size does not matter. Contrary to the belief, size does not matter. I don't care if you're looking at a single lot or if you're looking at a house sitting on 10 acres. The truth of the matter is, is that the size of raw land you look at has a great deal to do with how much money you have, how big a bite you want to take, and if you have access to any other capital or equity outside of your own personal financials or finances, because if you do, It's a game changer. I mean, if you can go buy one lot at a time, you can make a great, handsome profit again and again and again. But if you notice there's a larger opportunity that's beyond your own financial reaches, you may have to find some outside investors, which we'll touch on at the end of the show. Um, I want to tell you this, too, that there is, in my view, on a rate of return, on a percentage of value that I get, in my raw land development experience, it's been very, very profitable. I really like what raw land does. And, of course, in real estate, we kind of have three categories. We have raw land development, which most uh, real estate investors consider that to be the highest risk, uh, most uh, timely aspect of real estate because you're buying land with the hopes of acquiring it, changing its purpose, maybe getting it an annexed or getting some rules changed on it. That's a lot of risk. And you're doing it with the idea of once you get all the entitlements in place, then you have to figure out how to sell it. And that can be very daunting if you don't have a game plan in mind. The next level, of course, would be vertical, going up and starting to build something vertically on that land once you've entitled or changed the property's uh, purpose. Well, you start looking at the variation between raw land, vertical improvements, and then just sustained mature real estate, which I would call management or, or asset uh, accumulation. You're talking that the amount of money goes up exponentially to make those acquisitions from raw land to vertical to then, you know, mature assets. And it also has a lot to do with time and as far as risk. So there is a lot more risk, in my view, in raw land development, but I believe the rewards can be more than ample to make up for that risk. And I also think it has to do with how much risk you're going to take. So with all those things being said, let's go through a couple of examples, and I think this will help you maybe see exactly what I'm talking about, right? So things you might want to write down and consider. Here's how I would look at it if I were starting today. And let me pause for it. If I were starting today thinking about raw land development, what I want to do is I want to decide the following. What is my level of financial capability? Am I sitting with $50,000 in my account that I have as far as investment capital that I'm willing to commit to raw land development? Or is it $500,000? Or maybe it's only $5,000. That is a choice you'll have to make. In other words, when you look at your normal investments, you look at your normal cost of living, you look at your normal portfolio, and, of course, your risk tolerance, you need to decide, number one, what is your level of risk and what's your level of commitment? That's something you've got to decide. No one can do it for you. The second thing is you have to decide the product or the market focus. In other words, are you someone who wants to buy right on the edge of town? You see the Walmart coming out there. You realize there's some nice green pastures, there's a few uh, acres of cow farms, and you're thinking, you know, where Walmart goes, everyone follows. So I'm not interested in buying an in-town lot. I'm not interested in buying next to the Chick-fil-A, and the the, the juice and the lemon's already been squeezed out. I'm more the kind of guy that wants to go out and get up next to Walmart and maybe a oh, quarter mile down the road and pick up raw land for five or $6,000 an acre and sit on it for the next 10 years because I think I can get it annexed and I can get it rezoned and replatted and changed into a commercial property. You have to decide, is it residential, is it commercial, is it industrial, is it multifamily, is it simply which level do you want to play because until you make that up, you have nowhere to go. And the example I'm going to give you is it's like hiring a fishing guide on a lake. You know, I, there's a lot of lakes here in Texas, and sometimes I'll pick up the phone, and I'll call a guide that maybe north here in Lake Texoma, and I'll say, hey, listen, I think about bringing a couple of buddies up we want to hunt. We'd rather hunt up in the river so we're not so much interested in the striper or more so some of the catfish and some of the, the smaller type fish that are frequent that lake. And the guy says, you know, I've never done that before. I, I know the lake really well, but I mainly open water, and I use my, my guiding skills to go out there and knock out some big striper fish. And I say, okay, that's great. The problem with Real estate, it's a lot like hiring a guide. They may be a fishing guide, but if they've never fished in your pond, if they've never fished in the ponds you're looking at, you might as well go out there by yourself because they know no more than you do. So when you start to think about your product, you also need to think about your market. Where do you want to be focused? I'm always traveling. I'm always driving. And every time I pass by these other towns throughout Texas, Colorado, and the Southwest, I always think about there's a building, there's an asset, there's something I should look at. And I always come back to the same conclusion. I don't know what I don't know. So for me, looking at tangible assets, part of that tangibility is I have to be able to see it, touch it, kick it, and feel it. The further a property gets away from my home base, the further and more difficult it gets away from my home base, the less I can see it, touch it, kick it, or feel it, it increases my risk. Sometimes you'll find the greatest opportunities for you to invest in raw land or land development is within one hour of your house. In most cases, it could be within 30 miles or 30 minutes of your house. So keep in mind, you don't have to throw your fishing line all the way in the water. Sometimes the best fish to catch are underneath the dock you're standing on. Okay, then you decide, third and, and most importantly, decide what your levels of risk and reward are going to be. Are you a, a long ball player? you Are thinking, I'm going to buy raw land by that Walmart 20 miles out of town? But I know in the next 10 years, there's going to be a lot of, uh, new businesses and commercial activity out there, I'm willing to wait 10 years and I can figure a, a rate of return on my money and I can discount it. So I'm good. I can hang 10 years. I'm, I have no concern. Or are you a, a more uh, kind of a first base kind of guy? I just want to get on base. I don't want to hit a double or a triple. All I want to do is put my money to work. I want it to be fairly safe, but I'd like to rotate my dollar so that way I could find it, buy it, put it back in the market. Take the the sales proceeds plus the gain on that sale of proceeds and redeploy it, something you'll have to think about because there's a lot of tax implications. There's also a lot of uh, rotation of dollar implications. The less funds you start with, the faster it seems you're going to want to rotate those dollars or you'll be out of capital to look at that next raw land opportunity if you got your money tied up, all right? The other thing is, and fourth on this list, is do you want to have a solo effort? Do you want it to be by yourself, do it on your own? Or do you want to even contemplate having partners? Now, there's a whole new realm of thinking when you think about partners, and I can tell you, I've had partners my entire career, and some relationships have been incredibly good, and a lot of relationships have been incredibly bad. And sometimes a relationship in a partnership a business dealing can in fact be, in some cases, worse than maybe the nastiest divorce you've ever heard of. In Texas, I know, I've seen this, I've been through this before myself, is that in Texas, uh, the courts consider a business partnership, your obligation and your fiduciary duty to a partner greater than you owe it to your own spouse. There's so much precedent-setting cases that indicate that if you're in a partnership and you're the fiduciary, the manager, or the person putting it together, you're going to a lot of fiduciary duty more so to your partners than you do your own self. So this is co- this this asking for looking for a partner because you want to take a bigger bite, or maybe you're thinking you can rotate your capital faster by having other friends and neighbors and families join you, that's great, but there's a lot that comes with that. In addition, there's the emotional component. There's the, I've got my brother along this deal. I've got my mother, and I can tell you to hundreds of different ventures where I've seen individuals bring in family members and they brought in friends and buddies and high school friends and et cetera, and they have regretted every minute of doing it. Now that just depends on you, it depends on how you structure the venture and of course it depends on the type of people you're friends with and the type of family members you have. And so last but not least, I think we gotta get down to a real story. So I'm gonna take a pause. I want to restate what we're doing here. The show is about tangible assets. It is about something you can see, touch, kick, or feel. This isn't a stock trade, this isn't buying a public real estate investment trust, this is not buying into a partnership. This is you, if you have this in your nature, this is you saying to yourself, you know, I have a lot of spare time. And in that spare time, I'm looking for different ways to use my skills in order to improve my family's net worth and improve my financial position. Now, I I mentioned this in last week's show, and as you guys get to know me from week to week, you'll find out. I mentioned this last week, and it's the truth. My wife calls me a proverbial putzer. What is a putzer? Well, I used to ask her that when she called me. That. I said, what the heck is a putzer? She said, well, a putzer is somebody who doesn't really have any intentions on, on doing something. They just kind of putz around. They just kind of stay busy. They're always looking and gawking. She says, when I drive down the highway, it's not that I'm texting on my phone. I spend more time looking out the window at for sale signs and signs of buildings and different businesses and I spend a lot of time calling on those signs, asking people how much you're asking for that commercial lot. What are you looking for for that building? Are you selling all that property or summer part? And she said, you know, if I send you for a gallon of milk, you're gone for 45 minutes to an hour. You don't just run up and get a gallon of milk. You're gone. And so I know if I want a gallon of milk for Saturday morning's breakfast, I better give you an hour's head start because you're going to take an hour to get back. And she says, what do you do? I said, I put I go down different streets. I go down different alleys because you never know when that property that you've been looking at, which you really think is a great corner location or is a great double lot, you never know when that sign goes up that says for sale by owner or for sale with a new listing. And you call it and you can't believe the price they're asking is so low. You can't believe that what they're asking is so below the market, fair market value. So I'm going to use an example of that for you. And here we go. I want to tell you that I've done about three or four large developments on my own, Um, I learned a lot of lessons in those, I've done a lot of small ventures in real estate, I've done thousands of ventures in oil and gas exploration, I've bought into many projects with two or three hundred oil companies all the way from Exxon down, Um, I'm involved in massive pipeline investments, Uh, we own the second largest pipeline in a collective partnership in the Gulf of Mexico. I own uh, hundreds of wells in North Dakota and interest in hundreds of wells in Oklahoma. So I have a a broad expertise or experience in land, mental rights, entitlements, uh, deeds, trust, uh, cloud on title, all the things that are necessary for successful real estate transactions. But because I'm such a putzer, I find myself in a position of always looking around, thinking about the what ifs. What if that waiter station was at a different location? The three tables that are sitting around that waiter station that nobody wants to sit at because they don't want to sit there watching waiters fill glasses with their rear space in the table. What if they changed that station so that way the front of the station was flipped around and now you have kind of a wall and it makes those three tables a little more personal and isolated? It's exactly like when I sat in that deer blind. After the second or third time my father-in-law takes me to that deer blind and I come out of the deer blind about 9.30 after kind of two or three hours sitting there. And he says, well, what did you think? How'd the deer look today? I said, well, I don't know about the deer, but I came up with a new idea. He says, oh, great. What kind of idea did you come up with? I said, well, I realized sitting in this deer blind that if you'd never been deer hunting before, this blind is all designed incorrectly. The door swings the wrong way. The hinges are not on correctly. The uh, the, the leftover bones from the mice that the owls have eaten are crunching, making noise. that scares the deer. And... I went through this whole litany of items that I felt were wrong with the deer blind, and I said, I'm going to come up with the Eckerd hunting pack, and in that pack is going to be everything in all one big pack that you can grab as a brand-new hunter. It's everything you need to sit in that deer blind. And so he said, okay, and he just looked at me, that look he's given me for 35 years, and he said, okay, you can't just sit in a blind. you always got to be thinking about the what if. The what if is how I've made a lot of money. The what if is what brought me a lot of opportunity. The what if. Is what you got to be doing in your life? You got to say, "What if I bought that lot? What if that guy would sell that extra lot he doesn't know he owns? What if that piece of land, it looks really, really good? What if it was actually being sold at a price below market?" So this brings you my, my what if, right? The what if was a piece of land outside of San Antonio, Texas, where I lived back in the '90s, and every day I drove my kids to school down this road, and I saw this sign was painted with uh, like looked like a spray can. For sale by owner. And the sign looked old. It looked like it had dirt on it. And it was kind of tilted sideways. And I bet I passed that thing for nine months. As I passed that sign, I started realizing, I said, you know, the sign hasn't left. Maybe the guy or the person still has it for sale. Maybe it's a good deal. Who knows? The fact of selling it by owner tells me they don't want to pay a real estate agent. Maybe they owe too much on it. They owe more than it's worth. Maybe they just refuse to pay a commission to a real estate agent. Who knows? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dial the phone and talk to him. So I dialed the phone. One of the nicest guys I ever talked to. And I just said, you know, I don't know anything what I'm doing. I said I was looking for some real estate to possibly develop. Uh, the town we live in is starting to boom. People are looking for residential lots. There's not a lot of residential lots. I've been looking for a residential lot to build a new home on. Could not find any. Prices were going up. So I said, I called you to find out what you want for your property, how many acres it is, et cetera. And the guy says, well, why don't you meet me out at the property? I only like to talk to people face-to-face. Say, great. So I drive out to the property. I meet him on his property, and he starts to give me this story. And he says, hey, let me tell you the history of the story. It was my wife's ranch. She had all the horses out here. She passed away of cancer. Now the land is being left in a trust for our two kids. So I used to be in raw land development. I know what value the property has. I know what somebody can do with it. I'm asking a fair price. I said, well, why hasn't it sold yet?" He goes, because nobody wants to pay a fair price. What they want to do is come in here and chisel me down 500 a 1000 $2,000 an acre. And what they don't understand is it's already paid for. So I have no motivation to sell it for less than what I think it's worth. And because I'm a land developer, I know how much profit is going to be made by whoever buys this and develops it. I said, well, to be honest with you, I said, I want to develop it. I have a simple plan. Uh, would you mind if I run that by you? And he said, no, go ahead. So I explained to him what I wanted to do. And he said, you know, I like you. I like the way you think. You're honest. You're up front. Why don't we do this? You put a contract and buy it. I'll help you get the financing at a local bank. I'll go in and vouch for you. In between you and I, I bet we can get this land sold to you, and I bet you can make a really nice development. So we negotiated. So it was 160 acres. 160 acres of beautiful flat land in the Texas Hill Country. I paid just at $2 million for it. Now, for me, I had to decide, like you, do I need a partner or can I do it on my own? I thought, well, I've got enough cash that I can put out enough equity that I can get local bank financing. Because at that time, all the banks knew what the land was worth and they knew darn good and well I was getting it out of below market. And they also knew that if I defaulted, they could go sell the land in a heartbeat. So the bank felt very comfortable with the collateral, which was the land. So I buy the land, and it was about $2 million. And by the time I put her under contract, the guy selling it said, now, here's what you need to do. Go ahead and get you a local engineer, a land planner, a guy that can move dirt. that will actually do the roads for you. But I want you to quickly get down to the county, and I want you to get to the city because it's in the city's area of of, of extraterritorial jurisdiction, ETJ. I want you to get with them and tell them, this is what you want to do, and ask them, what do you think of the idea, and do you see that you're going to cause any delays because there's anything in particular that you want? So I went to the county. I went to the city. I said, it's 160 acres. I want to turn this into two-and-a-half to 15-acre tracks. I don't want any high density. I don't want it to be a large track home builder. I want it to be luxury homes, and I want the average price of the homes to be $750,000 to $2 million homes. This is what I envision, and I may, in fact, buy one of the lots and build my own new home here. They said, great. The only thing we'll tell you is if you don't ask for any variances, there's no problem. And what's a variance? A variance means that there's rules and regulations set up for the land that's being managed by the city or by the county. And when you start asking them to change those basic applied rules, it's a variance. The more variances you ask, the more time it takes. And I went in and said, okay, this is what I want to do. Will there be any variances in this particular property? And they said, no, there's not. It's a very simple plan. It's exactly the product we want. We want to attract this kind of homes. We want to attract this kind of families. We want to attract this kind of value as far as the tax base goes. If you can put together that project, you'll get a rubber stamp. It'll go through and you'll have no problem. I said, fantastic. So I got with the engineer. I got with the city. I got with the county. I was able to go back to my bank and say, here's my conversation. The bank said, we're all good to go. We're closing the property. Now, it's been... 20 years, so I'm going to give you my best recall of this, but essentially, I put it under contract in April. I closed on the property in the middle of May, so 45 days or less. I was out marketing the property within the guidelines. They allowed me to market the property before the land had been developed, and by the time I got to August, only four months later, I had 13 of the 26 lots already under contract or under a option agreement which allowed me to know those particular buyers were going to execute and buy those lots at the price I was asking and then what I did to make sure I had maximum value for my own money is I had a financial planning associate that was looking at the stock market, not very impressed with it, saying, look, we're looking for better ways to make a yield and I said, well, I tell you what I've got. I've got a two million dollar development. It's going to take about another nine hundred thousand dollars to put in the roads and infrastructure and marketing. If you want to put together a small little debt instrument and put together 900000 as a second lien position, I'll pay you 10% flat, whether I pay you back in a month, two months, but it's a 12-month note for $900,000 at 10%. What do you think? Oh, I like that idea. It's great. He put together a loan document. I signed it. He advanced to 900000 I then went back to the land contractor and said, look, I've got the money ready. I'm ready to pay you tomorrow on your dirt work and getting all the roads put in. If you can do it faster than 180 days, I said, I can pay you a 10% bonus. Why? Because I'm paying 10% of the money. I've got 13 people ready to sign and execute lots. I have 13 buyers ready to pay maximum value for those lots at the price I was asking. The faster I get that road put in, the faster I can close in those lots, the less risk I take of those 13 people backing out of their contracts or the stock market or something else going crazy. And in addition to that, it gave me an incentive to reduce the amount of time. I kept the $900,000 12 month note that I took. So let me summarize it for you. I was in the county, I asked for no variances. I bought it from a guy who I talked to one-on-one that I guarantee a thousand people drove by that sign. and never made the call. I didn't try to stick around and squeeze the last drop of lemon out of the juice. I didn't try to sit there and suck every dollar by putting in 40 lots instead of 26 lots. I knew what the market was about. The market was about affluent people moving to the Texas Hill Country to get out of the cities because they wanted to have some space. and They wanted their kids going to a smaller school. And these people moving in had the money, had the absolute financial capability to buy lots of this caliber. And what they wanted was exactly what I was delivering. So in that particular case, I had about $2.9 million total invested. Cash of my own was about $400,000. I paid the loan back in nine months, paid them the 10%, so annualized was 13%. And then I was able to sell those 13 lots, paid out a substantial portion of remaining debt. As the project unrolled over the next 24 months, I did learn one valuable lesson. When you do a raw land development, price your least favorable lots accordingly. You want to drive your buyers to buy the least favorable lots first because what you don't want to do is sell all your favored, your best lots with the backed up to the creek or in the corner or the cul-de-sac. If you sell those first, what you're left with is the less desirable lots and you can't get a higher value for them and it takes longer to sell. In raw land development, the two things I learned was A, make sure you price your least favorable lots best. You can move those lots create some activity, and reduce your capital exposure. And the uh, second component that you want to have is is that um, I learned, at least mathematically in my mind, it takes two-thirds of your lot sales to break even. So time is of the essence. The longer you take to sell two-thirds of those lots, the more money you have exposed. I have another longer example, but I'm going to go to, because of time, I'm going to go to a very short example. And this is one of my favorite kind of a uh, land developments It's something that virtually any of you listening on this show can do yourself. It's something that can be a starter for you, but it's something you can replicate multiple times. You can do two, three, four of these a year, and probably something with a little bit of capital to start with, you can do this, we can compound your exposure time and time again. I call it a keyhole development, like a keyhole, a key in your door. It is where you find 5, 10, 20 acres coming off a main road, a paved road, and it is usually in the form of a square or a rectangle. And the idea is depending upon the county you're looking at or the city municipality guidelines you're looking at, there's a certain depth, meaning from the paved road to the back of the property in which you are gonna be limited because of emergency vehicles. Some some counties will say you can have no more than 600 feet of road into the development without having to have a second exit. Some will tell you you can be as much as a 1,000 or 1,500 feet as long as the cul-de-sac, the top of the keyhole, has a large enough circumference, those vehicles can get in and get back out. So the reason why I like a keyhole plan is is, is from this standpoint. So think about not having partners, because I want to save the last 10 minutes for finding investors. A keyhole plan works because there's always these isolated little 5, 10, 15-acre tracks that um, are always available uh, that just kind of sit there. You look at them for... Months and months and years and years, you drive by and go, God, here we are in this highly developed area, and this is this kind guy of sitting on 5 acres or 10 acres or 20 acres, but it's not anything happening to it. You approach that individual, you make an offer, they agree to it. In that contract of that offer, give yourself at least 90 days, if not 120 days, to close. Because what you've got to do is you've got to be able to have enough time to get approval and get an engineer And get an architect or land planner to be able to lay the thing out for you, which allows you the perfect opportunity for you to be able to know you're going to be successful at creating a keyhole subdivision. And the idea is simple. By having a small enough parcel of land, you can probably afford to do it on your own. Put some equity down, either either all, all cash or you can use cash plus a little bit of debt if you have a good banking relationship. The other thing you can do is by having it smaller, it means less sales. When you do a large development like I did, I've got twenty-six lots to sell. That's twenty-six individual sales of lots. If I do a keyhole plan, let's say five or ten acres, I might only have four lots or six lots, because I'm going to lose a I'm going to lose about fifteen percent of my uh, land is going to be lost as a result of the road and the infrastructure. So if I've got ten acres, I'm probably going to have no more than maybe eight and a half acres for lots. Maybe I want one-and-a-half-acre lots, so I'm going to end up with six or seven lots that I can sell. Well, that allows me to make a really nice entrance. It allows me to have a simple in-and-out. Every time I sell a lot, I'm going to end up selling 12 to 15% of my inventory, which means I'm going to have a very fast uh, time limit to get to that 66% that I want to achieve. It means I can have a much easier time maintaining, keeping the grass mode, making sure it looks really sharp. And most importantly is I can probably sell those five, six, seven lots on my own by putting for sale by owner. Or I can go to a local agent who has a fantastic reputation and say, look, I want you to be my listing agent for my little project here. And I'm willing to let you represent all seven, eight, nine lots, whatever it may be. But what I want to do is I want to co-market with you. You tell me how much money you're gonna put to market my lots and I'll match that. You put up 10,000, I'll put up 10,000. Why am I willing to spend so much money on marketing? Let me tell you something. I don't know how your experience has been in business. I don't know where you come from in your background, but the one thing I never scrimp on is marketing because the fact is every day that dollar has a value to it. The slower it goes, the longer it takes me to sell my property, the more risk I have of the market turning against me, the more risk I have people backing out, the more risk I have of competition coming in with newer developments and maybe other opportunities. But more importantly, is it it means that by rotating those dollars, by having good marketing in place, it means I start to build a reputation, which means maybe I could do a second keyhole plan, a third keyhole plan. Now I'm starting to build some true wealth off land development by allowing those earlier developments to be quicker, replenishing my coffers. All right, so let's talk about I've got another great example, but I'm not going to go through it because I think we're running short on time. Um, one of the things I'm learning through these shows is I will have a guest with me next week. Um, I'm excited about that show coming up next week, and it's going to be about cryptocurrency. And it's going to be about uh, what's going on in that market, but it's also going to be about the tangibility of it and, and how you own it and how you actually have those in your hands. Remember, if I can't see it, touch it, kick it, or feel it, I'm not really that interested, but it is something that I think we need to all talk about. So let's talk about... Uh, the last part of the show, which I said was going to be involving um, investors. Now, I don't know what your your experience is, uh, if you've ever put together any of your own joint ventures, if you've ever gone to a family member and said, hey, look, I'm thinking about opening a business, would you mind putting up some cash? I also don't know if maybe you're someone who's been doing this for a long time. Maybe you put together ventures doing other things. The first thing I would tell you is that you always have to make sure you comply. You've got to comply with any securities laws. You always have to ask your lawyer, and don't, don't scrimp on lawyers. Uh, from personal experience, do not scrimp on lawyers. It doesn't mean a $1,000-an-hour lawyer is a good lawyer. It just means maybe he's convinced everybody he's a good lawyer. Find you a good business lawyer who understands what you're going to do, and make sure that lawyer is, in fact, on your side. He is, he's playing on your team, not his team. I've dealt with hundreds of lawyers in my career, and I can tell you lawyers are no different than anybody else. The top 10% of who you want to deal with, the bottom 90%, can give you bad advice, charge you a lot of money, and leave you in a big mess. But in this case, what I want to point out about raising money is the following. You're probably sitting in the greatest liquidity time we've ever seen in the history of mankind. There is more cash sitting in bank accounts making less than 3 or 4% than probably existed 10 years ago. There are more investors that are dying to find ways to put money to work. They are just absolutely looking for any investment that makes economic sense, that is dealing with prudent, responsible people, and they believe they can make above-market returns. What does that mean? Well, the standard is always 10%. Everybody says, I want to make 10%. I want to make 10%. The truth of the matter is, is if you're going to start to raise money and look for partners, the first thing I will tell you is make sure – that you structure it correctly before you even talk to anyone. Think about what you want out of it. I always believe in OPPM, other people's money, OPM, other people's money. It's a great concept, except one thing. You have to put your partner's money first. So if you're going to go talk to somebody about investing in some land or raw land development with you, the first thing you must consider is, what is it that you're going to tell that potential partner investor about the structure of the deal that would allow them to think seriously about putting money into your venture alongside you. Number one, if you were asking me as an investor, are you putting any of your own money in? If so, how much? That makes me kind of believe whether or not you believe in your own investment. Number two, are you going to charge me any fees? Are you going to charge me any markup? I want to know what the financial incentive is for you when you structure a deal. Number three, if you ask me to put money in, Whose money takes a higher precedent? Is your money above the investor's or the investor's money above yours? These are just fundamentally basic questions that any smart investor, whether it's your brother-in-law or your mother or your dad or your sister or your friend, they should ask these kind of questions. Most people don't know to ask those questions, or they don't think past the excitement or euphoria of being involved in a land development. And I think you ought to ask yourself a question. Are you going to be the type of person that's going to ask partners to join you where you put your partners first at the feed trough? Are you going to make sure that no matter how the deal turns out, good, bad, or indifferent, you're going to make sure that they have a higher seat at the table than you do when it comes time for disbursement, sales, or return of capital? These are all fundamental ideas you must have in your mind and stand behind from the minute you begin to talk to somebody about their own money, about outside money. Um, I also believe that you should have a fair equity arrangement. So in my career, I've always put money together for different ventures. I always put money in every venture that I do. I always ask investors to be aligned with my interests, and I always ask them or let them know their money will take a higher seat at the table than mine. Why? They're counting on me. They are relying on me to give them the right answers and lead them in the right direction. So let's just use an example. Let's say you found a 10-acre track of land. You want to do a raw land development. It's $200,000. You know you would rather just pay cash for it so you didn't have to mess with the banks. You say, look, I'm putting in $50,000. I'm looking for a couple of additional partners to put up the other 150000 Maybe your brother-in-law, the dentist, says I'll put in fifty. Maybe your brother puts up fifty, And maybe your uh, buddy at work puts up 50000 So now there's four of you. You must be clear it is your venture and that you must make the decisions. Four people cannot make a decision. They didn't invest in order to make the decision. They invested because you should have already had the decision on the raw land why you're buying it, what you're paying for it, and where you're going with it. Once you've got an idea, put it in paper, talk to your lawyer, make sure it complies with the laws, you then submit those agreements to the three parties. You say, now, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to put the money in. I'm going to do the sweat equity. I'm going to provide you a preferred return or rate of return, 10% 10% on your money, you get the first 10% off the, off the sales proceeds or distributions after we develop the land. After that, we're going to have some kind of a, an equity arrangement. What does that mean? It means that you're going to get your money back and the 10% preferred return in my example. But once that's happened, I, the guy who brought the deal together, I'm going to start earning an increased equity ownership as a result of execution. I'm going to make this thing execute. And because I've successfully executed, I deserve to be rewarded with some financial gains above what I invested. I'll get my 25% of profit because I put in 25% of the money. But now I'd like to have a little bigger slice of the equity because that's what motivates me to go find projects like this and invite investors like yourself. So every, every deal has its own terms. In my view, the person putting the project together when they successfully execute has every right to ask for additional equity down the road. The thing, the thing the thing, you want to always keep in mind as I'm wrapping up the show today is raw well, land is a great investment. You can pick it up from any size. It's not geographically limited. You have to decide how much money you're going to put for yourself. You definitely have to decide if you want to put investors in or you want to do it with your own money. These are not hard things to think about. This is just taking out a piece of yellow note paper and start writing it down deciding what you're going to do. Anytime you have questions about items like this, feel free to call me live here at the show, 866-472-5790. You can always call me at my office at Eckerd Enterprises in Dallas, 800-527-8895. All I want to tell you today is I always enjoy bringing this information to you. And again, this is Troy Eckerd. I'm the Texan that wants to talk to you about tangible assets for tangible results. I look forward to it. I'll see you next Monday. We'll talk about some great subjects going forward. And if you want any follow-up, call me anytime, anywhere. I look forward to my friend SpaceX. Time, talent, and expertise. That is Tangible Assets for Tangible Results. Please join your host, Troy Eckert, every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Central Time, and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.